and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 42. My guest today is Alan Hoskins, President and CEO of American Farm Mortgage and Financial Services in Louisville, Kentucky. Alan and I are going to talk about the current health of the ag economy, what lessons were learned in 2017, and what 2018 might look like. Alan, welcome to the show. Casey, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for being on. Um, I always like to get my guest's background a little bit before we get started, so tell me a little bit about yourself and, and uh, your past experiences. Sure. Uh, Casey, I grew up on a farm in southern Illinois. I still actively farm, and as a hobby, if you will, I do buy and sell farm equipment. So everything to do with agriculture has kind of been a passion to me since I was a very young man. In my banking career, which has spanned 30 years, I've had the opportunity to more or less specialize in agriculture, and it's given me some fantastic perspectives as our organization actually deals with farmers on a nationwide basis. So I get the opportunity to understand agriculture from a little broader perspective than some of my peers. And Casey, what I've learned over the years is that whether it's a farmer in the Midwest, a farmer in the East, a farmer in Hawaii, farmers are typically pretty similar regardless of where we are. They're still, I think it's a great industry and what I find it's some very high character people that are involved in the occupation regardless of where you are. Okay, so here we are, you know, twenty seventeen's in the books now and we're and look forward to twenty eighteen and what that looks like. So when you look back on twenty seventeen, what are some lessons that you learned that um you look at and say, you know what, we we'll probably won't do that one again or you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna take my lesson learned here and I'm gonna I'm gonna move it over into twenty eighteen as as a positive or a negative and um and you know make my my transition moving forward this way sure uh, from a banking perspective casey one of the things that we continue to learn and producers know this as well is that the marketing component just becomes more and more important every year as these margins tighten down and understanding break-even points and Having a good functional marketing plan that allows in producers to execute some trades at profitable levels and understanding some of the risk management tools that are available to them to put floors in on prices but still participate in the upside, that's one of the things that as a banker that we are learning to have more in-depth conversations with producers about that. Certainly, as lenders, we never tell anyone what they have to do. We are to be a resource to them. And Casey, I would say one of the things that we focus on is learning more about that ourselves. With me being a producer, obviously, that's important to me. But within our institution, it's important to us to have those conversations because at the end of the day, we very much work for the customers that are kind enough to do business with us. They actually employ us, and they can fire us at any time, Casey. So I think one of the things that we really have learned that it's important to do is to have those discussions, and if a producer doesn't know those things, it's, okay, how can we help you? What are the things that you need from us in order to be more comfortable with where those are? And we also look at the importance of establishing relationships with the other 
service providers of the producers, if you will. I think that's a very important lesson we've learned is that if the producer is comfortable in allowing us to participate in discussions with them and their merchandiser or their equipment dealer or some of their other service providers, it facilitates a better relationship and gives the producer more data from multiple perspectives to help them manage their operation in a more efficient manner. Yeah. Yeah. I have Chip Nellinger on here quite a bit and he, you know, he from Blue Reef Ag and Marketing, he talks a lot about mm-hmm. having a plan and the marketing end of it and, you know, setting your sell prices and, and, and knowing when you're going to do stuff and sticking to that plan and moving forward. And it's a, uh, yeah. even in our business on, on my side, you know, when I'm looking at used equipment and, and looking at how I'm going to position ourselves moving forward, I have yeah. a plan in place of, when we're going to, you know, are we going to wholesale this piece? Are we going to auction this piece? Are we going to put some programs together mm-hmm. that are going to, you know, isolate mm-hmm. those pieces? Knowing what we're going to do, you know, having that plan all the time is such an important part of, 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 this, of this business. Yes, absolutely. And Casey, in the equipment side of it, when you look at most producers' balance sheets today, the equipment value on that balance sheet, many times, if not most, is the number two, or in some cases, the number one largest asset they have. And having the producer understand what that market value number is, not necessarily a tax value, but a market value, I think puts them in the position that when there is an opportunity to perhaps divest of a piece of equipment that's no longer required in the operation or when there's a good opportunity to upgrade a piece of equipment. I think them understanding that market value of that asset candidly makes your job easier from our perspective as a banker, makes our jobs a little bit easier. So that's also a discussion that we have with them is what are you doing to improve your knowledge in the equipment values as well? Yeah. So that's a that's a good question here. So when when you look at, I'm sure in your position you have either yourself or you have some people that that you travel you track that and with your um, hobby of buying and selling equipment, I'm sure you're pretty tuned into what's going on. So when you look at what's happening right now in the used equipment marketplace, I see some. I call it soft bottom. You know, I think there's it's mm-hmm. it's getting pretty solid out there. I mean, there's not the the giant drop-offs that we've had over the last couple of years that we've seen or, or uh, there's nothing really shocking about about what we see happening in the auction market right now um, I've been to a couple auctions here the last couple of weeks I went to one down in Sigourney Iowa there at Sinclair Tractor had one and then I went mm-hmm. to uh, SEMA equipment up in uh, Rochester Minnesota yesterday mm-hmm. and watched that one and both of those sales were where I would say that it, they were they got the money out of the machines. Um, mm-hmm. There was a few machines that I, I could buy, but most of it I was too far out of, of where I needed to buy it at to get it trucked back and all that fun stuff. But um, mm-hmm. when you look across the landscape, how do you see the used equipment marketplace and how do you see um, your customers' balance sheets um, compared to maybe three or four years ago? Sure. On the used equipment side, and like you, I, I do try to attend a number of auctions. In the particular area of the country where I'm located, out of the last five weekends, we have had five equipment sales. 
and it's ranged in color from red to green to a mix. And I would say in, in our area as a whole, and also these were retirement auctions. When you look at our area as a whole, Casey, the values, I think, have solidified very, very well. In fact, in a couple of the particular auctions, and combines typically being the highest price item, you know, those tend to, I really kind of look at those a lot of times as to, that's kind of the driver of the auction. And we've seen some, I, I think, very strong prices in contrast to maybe what we would have even seen a year ago with some of the machines. Uh, a couple of red combines lately have, have sold very well. Uh, it was an auction a couple weekends ago where a really nice a Deer 9660 STS, or excuse me, 9760 STS combine sold. So the market has been candidly stronger than I anticipated it might have been. And we've seen tractors hold as well. So yes, I would concur with you that, that I think the term soft bottom is pretty applicable relative to what we've seen. Relative to farmers' balance sheets, our customer base, there's a range everywhere from some operations that keep their equipment updated, if not annually, biannually to operations that take the opportunity to find those good 15-year-old pieces of equipment and utilize those. I would say, obviously, what we see if someone's buying a new piece of equipment, obviously, you're going to have that first-year depreciation. We all know that. But it certainly appears across the board, the market has solidified some. I would say particularly if you look at those tractors that are the 10-year-old or more 10 to 20-year-old tractors, low hours, good condition, nice appearance, I think we've seen the value on those move upward. And it's simply, I think, a supply and demand feature. You know, those kind of tractors are becoming a little more challenging to find, and when they do come on the market, they tend to sell pretty well because it's a great opportunity, perhaps for a bigger operator, to minimize their capital outlay in contrast to buying a one- or two-year-old machine. So I would say as a whole, we've seen that machinery value stay stay pretty solid. So when, you start, when you're looking at lines of credit and, and you're talking to a customer and, he, he, and you're giving him advice about how to move forward with a piece of equipment and what to do, mm-hmm. When does the the recon versus down payment conversation take place? So, for example, like a guy brings a combine into my shop, mm-hmm. they run through it, and it's hit some pretty critical reconditioning points, you know, and it's going to be very expensive to, to get the machine back up and going. Um, mm-hmm. And it might be a $25,000 shop bill to get mm-hmm. that combine just, mm-hmm. you know, with the major things that need to be done to it. When does that $25,000 recon bill become, you know what, maybe we should look at a down payment? When does that conversation take place and how do you look at that sure that that's a great question Casey what ideally that conversation occurs very early in the process when that producer understands that they've got a potential $25,000 capital outlay for repairs and what we would typically do in a situation like that is ask more questions to them 
you know, other than these issues, how has that particular machine functioned for you? Where is that machine on your depreciation schedule? Are you still writing it off, or was it written off in the first year of purchase? Obviously, that depends on the age and the length of time that's been on the balance sheet. And what we would typically do with them is look at the scenario of analyzing what their cash flow would look like if have them tell us the kind of machine that they would be looking at. Based on data that's in the marketplace, we would go out, if they're looking at a used machine, look at some samples of what similar machines have been selling for, and then put a payment on that machine into their cash flow. We'll see what the cash flow looks like with that data added in. And obviously, if they do look at going with utilizing the existing machine after the repairs, we would assume that there's probably going to be a little higher repair bill there ongoing and factor that into a cash flow and present those numbers to the borrower and say, okay, tell us a little bit about when you see this, which makes you more comfortable. Because again, it goes back, Casey, to where we're interested in working with them, but ultimately that final decision is theirs. And that's kind of how we would approach that. So as a lender, how would that, that same conversation you just had, how would that play into like a risk management strategy? So for example, a customer comes in, you guys did the same thing you just talked about there, and I have a $40,000 payment and then I'm gonna have a $20,000 shop bill, you know, something like that. So $65,000 worth of cash, or you could have maybe possibly a $50,000 payment, you know, you get that $15,000 worth of cash that's still laying out there. Absolutely. When you do that kind of thing, and then you marry that up with maybe say some extended warranties or you know service agreements or something like that, how does that stuff play into your risk management strategy or the discussion you're going to have with your with your borrower? Great question again. And how that would typically play out is we would do exactly what you just talked about and sit down with them and say, okay, based upon what we're looking at here with the warranties and everything that you factor in, if you look at your historic repairs and maintenance, we could probably adjust that down a little bit. Whereas if you maintain the combine you have going forward, we'd bump that up a little bit and sit down with them, go through those numbers and let them tell us kind of where their comfort level lies. Because at the end of the day, Certainly, we can give them the thoughts and ideas, but it many times comes back to the comfort level of that borrower. What I would say as a lender is that what you just brought up relative to the extended warranties and things, that's something that we are very interested in making sure that we understand and know because it helps us in giving them thoughts and ideas. And that's where, Casey, that what sometimes can be a little bit of a lengthy discussion with the borrower to draw some of that information out. I think at times they know it because they've had a conversation with you, but unless we as a lender ask the question, it's not that they knowingly keep it from us. It's just that they don't typically think about, oh, yeah, if I share this with them as well, that does kind of skew the picture a little bit. So, you know, in that particular scenario you gave, Assuming the borrower's cash flow is in pretty good condition either way, certainly it would appear that turning that machine, given the extended warranties, gives them a little bit of risk mitigation going forward for the next few years. Yeah. 
Okay, so moving into more risk management here. So go looking back at 17, there was on-farm income obviously wasn't very high, and, and everything that I've read moving into 18, it's not going to be much better. Um, mm-hmm. Looks like ranchers might have a little bit of an edge on there just because the price of cattle mm-hmm. and, and the way those that's yeah. moving forward. So outside of you know crop and, and livestock prices, what are the one or two big issues do you think that, that are facing guys today and – and when and, and how is that going to play into some strategies, whether it be risk management mm-hmm. or, you know, cash flow protection? How, how, what are you talking to your guys about and, and what are you hearing from your, from your borrowers? Sure. Casey, there's a broad range, broad range, pardon me, of things. Obviously, the marketing side affects the top part of the income statement. One of the other discussions we have with them is tell us about your strategies for input purchases. Tell us about your strategies for, if it's grid sampling, how are you becoming more efficient and effective with your inputs? You know, Casey, sometimes in in challenging times, what can unfortunately occur is cost cutting can at times be a detriment to net income as opposed to a positive to net income. Certainly, we want to see our producers maximize their profitability, but we want to make sure if they are cutting expenses, are they cutting the correct expenses? Fertility, obviously, is one of the major expenses of any row crop producer. And understanding their philosophy, if they are cutting back on fertility, understanding is that a one-year philosophy, is that a multi-year philosophy? Are they looking at strategic reductions? For example, some of their land is not quite as productive versus their higher producing land. Are they looking at specific areas to cut? One of the other conversations that we're having where producers are heavily dependent upon rented ground, tell us about what you anticipate happening with your rental arrangements. I think, and I I don't want to say that lower commodity prices being in the news is a positive thing, but I think one thing, Casey, that it has done, it's probably opened the door for some opportunities between producers and landlords. Because I think most everyone is that's related to agriculture is pretty well aware of where we are in the commodity cycle. And I think it makes beginning that conversation with that landlord perhaps a little bit easier from the standpoint of it's now more of a detailed discussion relative to where economics are. So I think there's one of the things from a risk management standpoint that we talk about. And one of the other things, and this is not a balance sheet thing, Casey, but one of the things we really want to understand better relative to our producers is looking at their long-term plan relative to succession. And not necessarily estate planning, although that's important, but Succession planning and estate planning are two different things. And if we have a borrower that is anticipating transitioning out of the role as the primary producer, 
over the next 10 years. Understanding how they see that happening, and again, perhaps using some relationships that we've built, help them find a good resource provider to work with to help them facilitate that as well. So I would say those are probably three of the bigger things from a risk management strategy that we're having conversations with producers about. So during the risk management part of that we just talked about there, mm-hmm. you brought up you know grid sampling, those kind of things, yes. different, different ag services and, and, and technology that go in there. How yes. important is that to you as a lender as far as maximizing their profitability, maximizing their efficiencies, those kind of things where, you know, grid sampling and soil sampling and, and those kind of things are going to play into a into a uh, strategic plan as well as the various technologies now that you can get, you know, whether it be guidance systems or drone mm-hmm. systems or satellite systems or whatever it is that you're that you're looking at for, for the farming operation. How important is that to you as a lender? Um, and how much weight do you put that into um, when they're talking about borrowing money from you? I think, Casey, it, it is very important to us. It certainly isn't the final decision factor by any stretch of the imagination. However, there is, I believe, a strong correlation between high levels of profitability on a farm and high levels of maximization of fertility rates based upon soil types. Also, you mentioned something there. If you look at the utilization of technology, be it guidance systems, those type things, the operations that are in the higher echelon of utilization of those items as part of their strategic planning do tend to be the higher profitable operations. I don't think that is an accident because candidly that correlates into a higher level of management and regardless of what your business type is, the, the more advanced your management systems are and the more that you're looking on paybacks of investments, if you will, typically that does translate into a higher level of profit. You know, I, I, I've talked about this a lot with guys and there's in 2016, 2017, those years, as far as the economy goes, were kind of mirrored each other. You know, I, I put mm-hmm. a, a spreadsheet together the other day and then looked at um, available inventory of used equipment across uh, a couple different websites that we tracked. Mm-hmm. And there's a steady decline uh, from the beginning of 2016 to the end of 2017, but it's so just mi- like micro level. Mm-hmm down every month you know that if you really when you're looking at the bars on the graph you can't really see anything but when you put a trend line through there it's just a very gradually very slight decline so that tells me that there wasn't a lot of things that changed between 16 and 17 um just enough to kind of get everything to kind of dip down and and most of that was probably driven by the need to upgrade equipment not necessarily the want to upgrade equipment um yes so with those challenges and and the stress and pressure that they've had in their farms over those last two years, how, how are balance sheets going to react? What's, what's going to, what 2018 is kind of setting up to be very similar to 16, 17. Yes. Very well said, Casey. And 16 and 17 in a lot of respects, obviously there were pockets. This is not true, but it appeared to be very much mirror images. There were a couple of good selling opportunities in 17 
that presented themselves and balance sheets going into 18. Obviously, working capital continues to be a very, very fine point of focus because they're, to some degree, measures the resilience of the farm to be able to absorb challenges. We continue to see equity positions, for the most part, be pretty solid. Obviously, producers have that own land have been a beneficiary of what we saw throughout the super cycle and the run-up of land values. So from an equity standpoint, balance sheets continue to be, for the most part, pretty strong. Working capital obviously has diminished over what we saw back three or four years ago. Cash flows tend to be very, very tight as well. So I would say we're having similar conversations, or we will be as we get more into the renewal season for operating lines. We are having some similar discussions with borrowers of what we've had previously. One of the benefits, Casey, that is still out there, or one of the benefits that could still be out there for people, is if there is a need for refinance, we're still looking at some overall traditionally very low interest rates in contrast to what you would see if you look back over a 30-year history. And there are the products still available that allow producers to leverage low interest rates over a longer period of time. There's still the 20 opportunity for 20, 25, 30-year fixed rate money out there. If there is a need to refinance, assuming cash flow supports the repayment. We have seen producers be more willing to potentially divest themselves of some rented land that just doesn't make sense to them in the long term. Perhaps it's, a, perhaps it's a little further away from their base than they would like, given the profit margins that exist, or perhaps it's a piece of land that they picked up recently that recently being the last three to five years, it just really doesn't make sense long term. But I think balance sheets as a whole, from the equity standpoint, still tend to be pretty strong. It's just the working capital and the, the net profit that we're looking at. Okay. So back to the operating note point there, you know, operating mm-hmm. notes are now in the process of being assessed and, and you're going to start looking at um, what guys are asking for and how that's going to cash flow and, and the balance sheet pressures and everything else that are there. So what are you looking at different now than you did in 16 or 17? At this point, I wouldn't say other than, you know, obviously we are a little bit higher on interest rates today than where we were a year ago relative to operating lines. Long-term rates really haven't changed a whole lot. We are looking at, on the balance sheet, where the working capital should be in 12 months based on the projections that we're putting together and we are looking at on the equipment side where is the age of that equipment are there any capital improvements that the borrowers anticipate needing and we're looking at those type things as a part of looking at the renewal process obviously Prices are a little bit below, I would think, projection-wise, maybe where we thought they would be this time last year. 
So we are making those adjustments as well. And those are some of the areas of focus that we have. We will also look at an operation and as part of the renewal process, let's say, Casey, they don't have their interest rates locked in and they're on variable rates. If we would rate shock, if you will, in other words, if we would assume a 100 basis point rise in interest rates, where does that put them 12 months from now? So that we can have that discussion as part of renewing the operating line just to give the borrowers some feedback and also get their thoughts and ideas as well. Because Casey, certainly none of us have a crystal ball that is going to predict interest rate movements any more than we have a crystal ball that's going to predict commodity price movements. So those are some of the types of discussions we would be having with borrowers at renewal time. Okay. That leads to my next question then. So rising interest rates. So mm-hmm. chairperson Yellen basically has said, look for a quarter per, a quarter point raise basically every two to three times a year, more like three times a year. Um, and uh, incoming uh, Fed, Fed chairperson uh, Jerome Powell has pretty much mm-hmm. indicated that we're going to keep doing the same thing. So that means by the end of 2018, we could have, we could see a whole another point on interest, hold another percentage point up on interest. So how is that? How are you looking at that? I know you kind of, you kind of touched that on a little bit earlier there in that earlier answer, but how, how are you kind of anticipating that? Okay. We're going to be up. Interest rates are going to be almost 6% by the end of 2018. It kind of what I referred to earlier, we will look at what, 100 basis point increase would do to the operation. We would look at where they are real estate wise. We would look at real estate rates, maybe look at some of their equipment rates. Is this a good opportunity to leverage some of the longer term assets to where we can get some hedging against rising interest rate environments for the producer? And tie the repayment of the existing debt to a fixed interest rate to give them a little more comfort that if that 100 basis point rate increase occurs, that they've minimized the impact of their operations. And Casey, I think certainly if you look back over the past year and you you look at the increases that we've seen from the Fed, certainly I, I think that the information that we hear in the public is predicated upon their best beliefs. Over the course of 2018, who knows what we might see that that 100 basis point figure could be 50 basis points, that 100 basis point figure could be 200 basis points. We, I don't believe, certainly from my perspective, I don't have any way of knowing. So I think running those scenarios on the operation at different interest rate points gives the borrower additional information they can use and saying, you know what, I've had this really good interest rate on this real estate for a while, but wow, I think I'd feel more comfortable giving where I think the economy is and where we might be going. 
I think I'd feel a little more comfortable going ahead and maybe locking that in. Or if they've got a contract for deed on some land that doesn't have a prepayment penalty, maybe they consider going ahead and paying that off, rolling that in. Those are the type of things that we would be talking to people about as it relates to interest rate movements. So when you have when you're looking at those um, operating lines of credit, is that hundred hundred point basis built into that already, or are you just kind of erring on caution and you're somewhere in the just somewhere in the middle? Now that would that would be kind of looking at a worst case scenario, mm-hmm. or maybe two hundred basis points would be a worst case scenario. Okay. So. It's not that we're pricing in certainly a 100 basis point increase right now, but we are looking at, for the benefit of the operator, let's say 12 months from now we're sitting here having this exact same discussion, and let's assume that you've had the exact year that we thought you would have. What would your cash flow look like at that time? So that gives them some capacity in which to say, you know what, For example, there's some operating lines that we can do that are multi-year operating lines secured by real estate. There might be an opportunity there to, again, get a hedge against interest rate rises. As equipment dealers, we're really good at educating the customer that we deal with on Mm -hmm. the various technologies and and Mm -hmm. the efficiencies and stuff like that. But um, I don't think until this year, maybe even 2016, Mm -hmm. it ever really dawned on any of us that maybe we should talk to the bank or two. About what, about you know all the stuff that we're telling the customer because like you said earlier yes. the customer's not going to come into you and give you this John Deere brochure and sell you on why he needs to buy this new combine he's going to tell you why I need to buy a new combine is because I need mm-hmm. a new combine mm-hmm. so as equipment dealers what do we need to be doing to with with lenders like yourselves I mean what would you see like to see from us to to help you understand what's going on well first of all Casey I would hope that lenders are educating themselves to some degree because let's face it if if i'm lending to a borrower that say on their balance sheet they've got two million dollars worth of machinery and equipment i feel the responsibility to that borrower to be knowledgeable about what comprises that value because if if i'm going to add value to them as a banker casey they they shouldn't have to explain to me when i see the letters S680, they shouldn't have to explain to me that's a John Deere combine. So I'm going to answer your question predicated upon the belief that lenders already have some base level of knowledge and that you're not starting from scratch with them, that what you're doing is more fine-tuning. I think one of the things, Casey, that could be done is helping bankers understand the payback of the investment. You know, when you look at swath control on a sprayer, obviously there's going to be chemical savings in that. When you look at row command on a planter where it's going to shut off, there's going to be seed savings in that. And I think helping those bankers understand the economics of that investment will be very beneficial. I think also, Casey, just making sure that there's an open line of communication there 
Because candidly, if the banker isn't comfortable with something, for example, if if I have a borrower come in here and they're talking about something that I'm not familiar with at this point, I have people within the industry that I feel very comfortable picking up the phone and saying, hey, did Deer come out with something new or did Case come out with something new or New Holland? or Because I'm not familiar with this. Could you help educate me a little bit about it? So I think maybe just having a good open line of communication with some of the lenders. I think also one of the big things is lenders understanding what is going on with the used equipment market, both on a wholesale and retail basis, is very important. And it's going to translate into the borrower probably having to answer less questions at renewal time relative to some of the balances shown on the financial statement as far as machinery and equipment. So those are probably some of the key things that I see, Casey, that dealers and bankers could communicate more effectively on that would be beneficial to all the parties involved. All right, Alan. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. I think we've kind of got a pretty good idea of what you see happening in 2018 and, and, and you know how equipment dealers and lending institutions can work together and help the producer be more profitable so before we head out do you have any last parting words you'd like to say before we shut it down sure first of all casey i really appreciate the opportunity to be a part of your podcast and i think the relationship between the equipment provider and the lender is something that if it's developed a little more fully is going to pay dividends to the borrower or your customer. But the number one thing, Casey, that that I think is imperative in times like this is the open channel of communication. And having the relationship be such that whether it's good news or news that we wouldn't necessarily, we don't necessarily want to talk about, just making sure that that open line of communication is there for both challenges and successes. Because one thing we don't want to forget, Casey, even in challenging times, there are some great success stories. In fact, some of our best long-term decisions can be made during challenging times. So I think keep those lines of communication open and understand that agriculture is cyclical. We're going to go through the challenge, and the more open the communication, I think the greater the possibility that we can find solutions to the challenges to make sure that these farms stay where they need to be, and that's a part of these families. Yep. Okay, well, Alan, thanks for being on the podcast, and if I can ever do anything for you in the future, please let me know. Thanks, Casey. Really appreciate it. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. I'd like to thank Alan for being a guest on this episode. Remember, if you'd like to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC, or you can find me on LinkedIn. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. Moving Iron LLC now has a website you can visit, movingironllc.com. Here you can find information for the 2018 Moving Iron Summit in Las Vegas, past and current episodes of Moving Iron Podcast, and articles from Moving Iron Blog. Throughout the year, there will be guest bloggers writing on various topics from their point of view. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And if you shop at Amazon, please use the Amazon click-through on the Moving Iron LLC website. It won't cost you anything, and you'll have the same experience you're accustomed to while supporting the podcast. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out.